All right, um, it is so good to be back teaching. You know, um, one, of the, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I've loved hearing what, what you guys have heard as Doug Fields has been here for the past three weeks. And, you know, one of the things they tell you when you get a replacement speaker, someone to, you know, kind of be your other speaker is, you know, don't let them speak for multiple weeks and make sure they're a lot worse than you. And so, you know, I was like, no problem. You know, there, there's, <laughs> shoot. You know, so uh, totally failed. Um, heard great responses from you guys. So many great things going on during this section of our beautiful mess series. In fact, so many great things happening, and the Irvine campus has got the same exact three weeks happening um, at their campus this week. And so, very, very, I'm just, I'm so excited for what God's doing in our midst, and just having conversations with people about some of the stuff that, you know, Doug in such a practical way, and he's, you know, one of my heroes, the fact that, you know, he's able to, to talk about things in such a practical way about parenting was unbelievable. So, myself, I have, so my notes are, I have notes that are covered in all kinds of writing and ideas, and oh my gosh, I can't believe I do that to my kids kind of stuff as well. Um, but I'm really glad that you're here. If it's your first time with us, we are in the middle of a series called Beautiful Mess, and it is, um, man, it has been great to hear people and some of the responses we've got. What, basically, it's a series on relationships. And we know that in all the relationships that we have, they are beautiful, they are critical, they matter, whether it's marriage or kids or dating or friendships or whatever it is. Every relationship, because it's governed by human beings and human behaviors, can be kind of a mess. And so we are constantly in need of repairing them. We're constantly in need of figuring out what, is, uh, what makes them beautiful. And we believe God is capable of restoring even broken relationships. And so we are going to continue in our series today in Beautiful Mess. So what would you do this with me? Would you pray with me as we jump into today's uh, message? And then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, we're grateful that you, um, you bring us here. We're grateful that we get to hear from you. Father, we're grateful that this is a room of people who um, are not perfect. That for those of us who might have come in here feeling the pressure to have everything perfect, and while we might have uh, struggled to get our kids here or get ourselves here or wake up in the morning and felt like we don't know what we're doing here, um, Father, you're not, you're not surprised. And that there is no one person in this room who has right now got everything figured out. We're grateful that we don't have to have that pressure. Jesus, as we, um, as we consider all of the relationships in our lives, Father, we pray that you would bring healing, that you would bring restoration. Father, would you introduce us to a new depth of your love, and would you grant us hope coming out of the, the brokenness of the relationships that we are presently in that are not working? And so, Father, as we do from time to time, we would just pause in stillness and ask God that you would speak to us in silence the power of your Holy Spirit. So we just give you a moment, Jesus, to speak to us. Father, we pray that you, we, would, we would get a better picture of you, of your design for our relationships, and that we get a better understanding of how much you so deeply love us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, if you want to pull out your outline, you can follow along. And there's a little you know, outline in there in the bulletin. You, if you want to follow along on the screen, great. If you want to follow along on some kind of digital Bible, great. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 3 and we'll work our way kind of around a little bit. But um, love to have you follow along. If you want to you know, take notes, I recommend that you do that. Um, and if it's your first time, you can keep our souvenir pen. If you got one on the way, I'd love to have you have a pen that says Bic on it. And you'll think of us, you know, always when you see that. All right. Um, not too long ago, I was, uh, I, was, uh, I was at the beach with my family, and uh, this is in the summer, and um, been surfing all day and, you know, messing around with my family and stuff, and, and, uh, it, and it was it kind of towards the end of the day, it was time to kind of start cleaning stuff up, and the sun's going down, it's getting a little cold, and I'm like, I got to change, and so I run over to the, I, you know, 
I rinse off my surfboard and bring my wetsuit over to the shower and I'm, you know, rinsing it all off and I have my clothes in a little plastic bag and I'm like, well, you know, I'll just run into, run into the change room real quick and change. And I go into this, this beach changing room, like the bathroom at the beach. And I'm, I'm like, wow, this is really nice. Like, no, you know, no one ever walks into a beach like bathroom and goes, this is really, I'm like, this is really nice. All the changing rooms are like these individual little rooms. And there's like, this is so cool because, you know, this is, this is just so different than what I'm used to. And I'm like, this is great. And there's like five of them right there. And so I change, you know, and I get, put my shorts on, a sweatshirt, and, you know, and I'm feeling like, you know, and I'm, you know people are obviously using the bathroom and stuff. And I walk out and, and, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. Every single one of the, the toilets has its own stall. Oh, my gosh. I've just changed in the women's restroom. And there are people in here. And I have multiple things that run through my mind at that moment as I retreat back into the private changing room, which is the ladies' restroom has a private changing room? And the men's room, just so you know, guys, I have seen, I have seen the other side. And oh my gosh, they have, they, have, they have like a jacuzzi in there. And there is like a little lap pool. And, you know, it's like scented oils or something. But I'm just telling you, in the guys, there's like a bench and a big open area. It's like, it's just humiliating land. So there's the first thing. But the second thing I think is, how do I leave? Because the headlines that I have in my head are, you know, Mission Viejo Pastor. He's a stalker. He's, I mean, there's, I'm just a mad, oh my gosh, this is the demise of the church. I just started. This is a big nightmare. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. And I'm trying to think, how do I, how do I leave the bathroom? Do I leave, like, just kind of like, oh, whoops, like I just totally oblivious, like I didn't know? Do I leave laughing? Like, this is so embarrassing, because that wouldn't be hard to do. Or do I sprint out, which that could look horrible too? So I literally, I have to walk out. I, I, decide, I opt for a, a mix of total embarrassment and laughter. So I walk out like, oh, man, that was, oh, that was so awkward. And this is so, anyways, I'm running away. Ah, I mean, it was so, I was so pained by this experience, not knowing what could have happened. Like, who, this could have gone so horribly bad. Now, every one of us has this fear somewhere inside of us that there is a, there is a fear, an ancient fear, that whatever it is that is beneath the surface would be exposed. And we would have this overwhelming experience of shame And so we do so many things in our lives to protect us from that experience of being fully exposed because we can't imagine much worse. Now, as we kind of start in the beginning of of, of things in the Bible in Genesis, you have that men, men and women are created in God's image. God tells them you can have dominion, which is to say rule or care over. You can have lordship over the whole earth. And there they are, they're, they're commanded then to be fruitful and multiply. Great command, first command in the Bible. A lot of churches tend to neglect, that's the first one. Yes, okay. So there's this fruitfulness and multiplying and there's all this stuff. But human beings, we saw this in week one of the series, if you're with us, reject this idea. They go, no, no, it's not enough. Whatever you've given to us, God, it isn't enough. And so they begin to turn the ark of creation toward themselves. And here's what you find in Genesis 3, verse 6. This is, you know, this is the proverbial eating of the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit being offered to her of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now here's what you have to recognize a couple things. 
At the moment they have this understanding, the, the, first of all, the, the temptation that the serpent gives to them is you're going to have knowledge. And they get knowledge. And what they realize is this moment of total exposed shame. Oh my gosh, we're, we're naked. And then what they do is they go and find some fig leaves to make coverings. Now, what I want you to catch is for a moment, as we spend a moment just thinking about this, is they find themselves ashamed and they go and make something to cover up their shame. I think for us, as a society, as a people, we are experts at finding coverings. We're good at it. Because we know the loneliness of shame. We know the experience of being exposed. We know what that feels like. And so we have become really good at making coverings to try and hide what's been exposed. So those are things for us. You can predict them. Chasing money, chasing success, winning at work, exploiting the weaknesses of others, finding a way to compare ourselves to other people. We change our appearance. We might buy something to cover up. We might put something else in our garage or something else on our shoulders that shows that we're something different, that we can hide something. We'll post something on social media about how wonderful something we did is or how great the burrito was that we just ate or whatever it is. But we want everybody to know there's something that's great about us because we're going to find some ways to cover, but we'd rather be covered than be exposed because if we're exposed, we're ashamed. If we're ashamed, well, we're really at risk. Verse 8, the man, uh, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, if you remember, if you're with us before, week one, the question God asks for the man who is hiding in the garden is, it's not a question because God is like, man, I don't know what happened. I, I thought I had track of everything. And one of the things you'd all say is, you know, God probably knows everything. So he's not asking the question, again, if you're with us, Saying for himself, like, ah, man, I've lost Adam. I don't know where he went. What he's saying is, the question is, it's for Adam. Where are you? You have lost yourself. Where have you gone? I made you guys. You had everything you needed. Now you've tried to start hiding, and you you have run away and hid in the trees. Verse 10, Adam answers. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, this is really subtle here. Adam and Eve have made themselves coverings, and they ran away and hid. Because they were, as the Bible says, they were naked. Now, you are covered, and yet you are running and hiding because you're naked. Say that again. Adam and Eve have made themselves coverings. They decide when they hear God coming that they're naked and so they run and hide. Which means then that the coverings that they've given themselves are insufficient to cover their shame. We're naked. We should make some coverings. We're so exposed. We feel shame here. What should we do? And they go and hide and because they, they still have this experience of nakedness, of being exposed. The coverings of whatever we have put on ourselves, whatever we make for ourselves, are totally insufficient for covering up our shame. And so what we tend to do as people is we tend to add more things onto our lives. We tend to figure out other ways to cover up our own shame such that nobody else could ever really see the real us. We're so covered up, so insulated, because we never want anybody to know the real us because that's shameful. See, 
the more we cover up ourselves, the more our, our relationships are, repair, are impaired. Because of our universal fear of being exposed, we're alone. Statistically, this is the most, in terms of adults, this is the most lonely people in the history of America, maybe the history of the world. Over the past few decades, the, the, the number of people who identify themselves as being lonely. Uh, in the 1980s, it was um, 20% of people. One in five people said, I'm lonely. That number has gone up to 40%. That means roughly half of us in here are living our lives, coming to church, going to work, coming home, being whatever, whatever that might look like, taking kids to carpool or getting dressed in the morning and going to Starbucks, whatever. All of that life, we're living that whole life with the experience of being alone. I mean, you have to think for just a moment about how many more ways there are to connect than ever before in the history of the world. And yet, loneliness is on the rise. Since the year 2000, or this this week, since the year 2000, uh, there has been a consistent decrease in the total number of homicides in America. But there has been a sharp increase in the number of suicides. Something is wrong with the way that we experience life. And, you know, there's so many of us, as we think about it, that we wonder for real life. We wonder for real connection. We wonder for real hope. And we wonder if there's ever really going to happen for us. Because so many of us, though we might have some coverings over us, are experiencing a profound loneliness. I want to read you this article. This is from Slate. This writer who was um, from Slate magazine, she's... um, She moves from New York City to Oregon to try to find some, you know, get a kind of change of pace. And in her, and she, as she moves, she, uh, decides, she starts doing some research because she's not finding a lot of meaningful connections in her life. She starts doing some research on loneliness, and here's some of the research she finds. Loneliness is not just making us sick, it's killing us. Loneliness is a serious health risk. Studies of elderly people and social isolation concluded that those without adequate social interaction were twice as likely to die prematurely. The increased mortality risk is comparable to that from smoking. And loneliness is about twice as dangerous as obesity. Social isolation impairs immune function and boosts inflammation, which can lead to arthritis, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. Loneliness is breaking our hearts, but as a culture, we rarely talk about it. Loneliness is doubled. Here's the statistic. 40% of adults in two recent surveys said they were lonely, up from 20% in the 80s. All of our internet interactions aren't helping and maybe making loneliness worse. A recent study of Facebook users found that the amount of time you spend on the social network is inversely related to how happy you feel throughout the day. In a society that judges you, judges you based on how expansive your social, social networks appear, loneliness is difficult to fess up to. It even feels shameful. I remember when I, um, high school students are with us, he can tell you this too. A lot of times you see a high school kid on a phone, you know, they get mocked all the time for always being on a phone because we're so different than that. <laughs> but they always get mocked for that. And they're always doing this. And I, and I remember, even as a high school pastor, and, you know, dealing, what they'll tell you is oftentimes they're not necessarily not necessarily doing anything except trying, they just don't want to have the appearance of being alone. I'm here, nobody's here, and so I just want to make sure everybody knows I'm not totally by myself. I have some kind of connection somewhere else. See, we're a group of people who are suffering from loneliness, but we're so deadly, deathly afraid of actually feeling or admitting that we're alone. A couple of rooted groups, one of the things we do as a, as a staff, every Tuesday we gather we talk about stories of what God's doing in our lives. And over and over again, the stories we hear that are some of the most powerful ones are the ones that come out of our rooted experience. Rooted our 10-week journey, our encounter with, with, with God and with, with relationships and with purpose, meaning. These are all, this is like a, it's an unbelievably great experience, and people will tell you about it. 
But some of the rooted groups are saying, the reason why I joined a rooted group, because I have no friends. I don't have any real friends. I mean, yes, there's people that I like work with and I'm around. I mean, but what they're uncovering is that the reality is, for most of us, most of the friendships we have, this is a sad reality, most of the friendships that we have, more often than not, unless we do something about them, are merely the intersection of um, overlapping schedules. That's really all that they are. And that's all that we know. Yeah, I'll go to lunch with that guy who works in my office. We'll go hang out. Well, maybe we'll catch a game here and there. But really, when it comes down to something really meaningful, people don't really know us. And there is this embarrassment about being lonely. There's a need for, lo- there's a need for relationship. There's a need for connection. There's a need for real friendships that aren't based on the superficial stuff of our coverings, but are based on the real us. But we're afraid of being exposed and having public shame. So what we do is we just start isolating further and further. And nobody gets to know the real us. There's a massive study recently from the University of Houston. There's a um, professor. She's, she does doctoral studies and uh, master's degree studies uh, for a bunch of people. And um, she does, her research is on meaningful connections. And she said for, particularly, for, this is, she said her research shows a couple things. One is that men and women experience shame totally differently. And that the way that they cope is so different from each other. And just to give you a sense of what this looks like, and maybe, you know, women, you can see if you connect with this, I can tell you how the men will connect with this. But here's what she says about women. That overwhelmingly, the research says women are faced, in other words, a way to avoid their public shame, is by doing everything, balancing it all, and making it all look effortless. Sound familiar, women? I don't know, do you feel that pressure a little bit? In other words, you have to look great, you have to do a million things, act like it doesn't bother you, act like you have a perfectly great attitude about everything, and nothing bothers you. I was, stand, I was um, with a friend of mine who was teaching at a, a MOPS group. MOPS is a Mothers of Preschoolers group at another church. And she said, I was teaching these, um, this is so interesting, she goes, I was teaching all these moms about the messiness of motherhood, basically trying to break some of this down a little bit, like, hey, it's hard, it's hard, and you don't have to have everything together and look like it's all together all the time. And she says, she's telling her husband, I am te- I'm doing this teaching on how, you know, it's called messy parenting and, you know, something like that, or messy motherhood. And her husband says to her, husband says to her, oh, <laughs> you'll be great at that. <laughs> now, guys are like, what's the big deal? Maybe, you know, she's got it. It's like, fine, she's got it. Women are like, you, how dare you? That is just, <laughs> you don't say that to her. Because what, what he's basically saying is, you are already breaking, you are already exposed, you are already a mess, you are already doing these things. Now he's not saying, God, so, just, women, just so you know what guys are actually thinking there, it's, you're doing great. Those things, I'm, you're great. I don't have to have you be everything. You know, but what she hears is, guys, you're not doing it right. You're a mess. Everybody knows it. I know it. There are things being not, not taken care of that should be taken care of, and you don't look like it's effortless. <laughs> guys are like wow, she's got under control the way men avoid this experience of shame this public shame is the experience this, is a, this, is even, this isn't surprising to me but it might be surprising to you is show no weakness show no weakness show absolutely no weakness it, now this is what's, what's crazy is this is the other side of this, this study which is so interesting 
So they asked, this, the researcher, she asked uh, all of these women who are in relationships, and she said, tell us what you want, your, your, what you want more from your, your, you know, your, your husband. And they said, we want him to be more sensitive, more open with some of the vulnerability of his life and all this other stuff. And, and the guys that did actually try to open up about their fears, they said, they reported back, both, the, both parts of the couple reported back, it significantly altered our relationship for the worse. In other words, that the women who had been dying for their husbands to be more vulnerable were unprepared for their husbands to be vulnerable. In other words, they want them to be on their white horse conquering evil, but they want nothing to show that they might fall off of it. So here are these guys saying, I can't show any weakness anywhere. I have to show no weakness at work. I have to show no weakness at home. I have to show no weakness among my friends. I have to absolutely be bulletproof all the time. And so my coverings are made of Kevlar. And both of them have this experience of not fully being known or loved. Now, when there's so much unexpressed pain and loneliness, when there is that experience, we have to do something about it because it hurts so bad. And we find ways to cope. I want to give you an example of what this looks like. This is in Ephesians chapter 5, and you know, I'll just put it on the screen. It's real quick, but check this out. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You can leave that on the screen just for a second. First of all, just really quickly, this is a, he's talking about this is a moment. For the church in Ephesus, he's saying the, the moment here, there's a difference between moments and like eons. He's saying this is a moment, and it's really critical, and you've got to capture it. And he says that the days are evil, which basically translates, these are desperate times. Now, just hold on for a second. Would you not say if 40% of people in America suffer from the experience of loneliness, not being alone, those are two different things, but loneliness, that people are, are, are constantly trying to figure out better and new ways to cover themselves from, their, from, who they, from who they might actually be to be exposed. I would say these are desperate times. Relationally, we are in a world of desperate times. And it requires some skill. Verse 17, here we go, keep on moving. Therefore, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, we don't use the word debauchery a lot unless we're like mocking something. You know, like unless we're trying to speak like we're, you know, from 16th century England or something. This is debauchery, you know, whatever it is. No one really uses that phrase. But I want to give you a sense of what that actually, what that actually means. So, basically what I want to ask you essentially in a second is this. So you can prepare yourself for this. Is What's your drink of choice? We'll get to that in a second. But debauchery, I want to focus on. The word literally translates something along the lines of an abandoned self. A dissolute self. Meaning that there is a disconnection from who I am intended to be, who I actually am, so that I don't have to feel it. Thus the word drunk. Now, for some of us, as we talk about this, first of all, talking about drunk on wine, Paul's talking about this kind of worship of a God called Dionysus where people would get so incredibly drunk and have a wild party, and that was the way they worshipped. Church was very popular back then. <laughs> College crowds loved that church. But it is this kind of life that leads to this kind of drunkenness which leads to an abandoned kind of life. That something is broken, that there's something about us that has been lost, that we're detached from the reality of how we're supposed to be, how we were intended to be. The trouble is, 
that when we encounter more loneliness, one of the things the research says is that our ability to practice impulse control goes down. The lonelier that we are, the less likely we are to resist things that would otherwise disconnect us from ourselves. So let me ask you, what is it for you that's your drink? For some of you, it actually is alcohol. Some of you, it's blame. Some of you, it's perfectionism. Some of you, it's pornography. Some of you, it's shopping. But we just seriously don't know how to deal with the fact of our loneliness, our secret inner deep loneliness. We don't know what to do with it. And we cover it even sometimes in the most, but we cover it sometimes with even outwardly really good things. Church stuff, activities, serving, all that kind of, we do all that, and they're great. But if they mask us, they're really doing some damage. And the trouble is, it's not that this kind of numbing effect, there's no such thing as a local anesthetic. You can't just numb the pain of loneliness or the pain of the specific shame that you might feel. We only feel numb across the board. It's only general anesthesia, which means we numb our capacity for love and meaningful relationship. We numb our capacity for joy and for gratitude. We numb our capacity for intimacy and for closeness. We numb all of those things. And our ability to live fully is undone, and so we kind of start this spiral of greater loneliness and less impulse control and greater loneliness and less impulse control, and all of a sudden we're kind of in this little silo. But there's an antidote. It is totally ironic. Guys will hate this antidote. It is scary. It is probably the bravest, most challenging, most courageous thing I could ask anybody to do, and it is the thing that we are dying for as people. Here's what it says in John 15. Jesus, by the way, I'll start this way first. John, John 15 is a part, if you want to turn your Bible. Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's told them about the Holy Spirit coming in uh, John chapter 14. And now in John chapter 15, he's talking about what, what kind of this life, he's talking about where we are now. He kind of talks about what it's like to live life with him. Even though he's just told him he's leaving. And he goes to this whole long you know, analogy of being connected in a, like a, a vine and the branches. He starts talking about being connected over and over again. The word you might know if you grew up in the church is the word abide, abide in me. It translates here as the word remain. And here's where he kind of then turns to his disciples a little bit more directly. He says this, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain or abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So, you have this idea about here, Jesus is now teaching, here's what it looks like to belong to me, to be attached to me. Remain in my love. Do what my Father says, do my, follow my commands, do this. Verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be complete. One of this for just a second. Most of us would say that we live with the experience, unless we are playing church and we're giving the right answer, that we live with the experience of an incomplete joy. That we have this vision that there is a fullness of life, a completeness of life that God intends for us to have, and most of us live with an incomplete joy. And Jesus says to his own disciples who have walked with him for three years, I've told you this about being connected to me, so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. 
Now, above everything else, if you haven't been with us before as we talked during the series, one of the things you have to know is the critical component, the critical thing we need is to restore this relationship that God intended for us at the very beginning, the one that got broken by our own human nature. That our first thing is intended that we would walk with Jesus intimately, we'd be connected with him. And out of that would, would flow this kind of joy. And then Jesus says this incredibly difficult thing, verse 12. Here's the command. Do what I say, joy complete. Okay, got it, Jesus. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There's some kind of connection here Jesus makes. He does it throughout his teaching about you and dedication and love and dying. That well, the way in which we love each other has to do with this ultimate, here comes the scariest word ever, this ultimate vulnerability. I mean, the other side of the coin of, expo- of being exposed is vulnerability. Now, guys hear this. Now, remember, there's no difference for a guy, just women, so you can get a sense of what this looks like. There's no difference for a guy between vulnerable and weakness. They, there's no, even as I'm reading, like, doing, like, I'm like, there's, so you want us to be weak? Because that means people, we show weakness, then people could really, they could take us out. I mean, we're no longer, we're, we're falling off of our, our horse. Vulnerability. I think for guys, we would rather take a literal bullet for someone else than have to show our own weakness. I think for guys, there's a better sense we'd rather literally jump in front of a train to save someone's life. That would be putting our life, you know, risking our own life for our friend, to give up our own life for friend, rather than saying, here's who I really am. Here's the things I'm scared about, the things I'm worried about, the things I cry about that nobody knows about. I'm so afraid that people would find these things out and they would find me to be weak. For women, what happens when you reveal to other people, to other women, I don't have it all together. Some of the million plates that I'm spinning keep getting dropped. And I'm trying to cope with things that are not really helpful. I put on the exterior that says everything's together and it looks all effortless, but I don't have any meaningful connection. I have deep and profound loneliness. We're so afraid of being ashamed. Yet this pathway, this vulnerability pathway, it is the critical factor in meaningful relationships. It is the critical factor. Now, this is why we get stories from people who finally get an experience of being rooted and they go, oh, this is what I needed. Let me tell you this. I'm going to give you a couple of things, a couple, a little bit of practical stuff. What do we need if we're lonely? What do we need? The shameful group of people, all of us who have stuff that we wish nobody would ever find out, the things that we know about ourselves that we go, my gosh, nobody should ever know these things. Let me give you something about, if those of you looking for meaningful connections and real friendships, this is what I'm going to give you, a couple things. And granted, this list is not exhaustive. It's just a couple things to think about. Here it is. One is this. You absolutely, we need some things desperately. One of them is this. All of us need to desperately understand that you have a, an inherent worth. You need a belief in your own worth. We started this series with Ephesians 5, chapter 1, and it's the one I want you to keep hearing over and over again. If you got nothing out of the series except this, then I would call it a success. It's this. I'll put it on the screen. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. So many of us have lived our lives with the experience of being only marginally loved, somewhat loved, fearfully kind of tolerated and yet God says, if you want to live the life that I've intended for you in relationships and with me as everything else, I, you have to know, you are dearly loved children. Some of you need to hear that every single week. You cannot, if that's all you heard this entire, I would, 
I mean, that would be the greatest thing. God adopts us as orphans through Jesus and calls us dearly loved children. We've said over and over again that our capacity to love other people is directly related to our own ability to know that we're already loved. You know, you are the result, you are the the subject or the reason for God's heroic and sacrificial journey to come get us. You are not a tragic accident. God is not barely tolerating you. He came to rescue you and his son Jesus. That is the absolute truth. You are dearly loved children. You have to know that. Or the rest of whatever I say doesn't matter. Secondly, we need people in our lives. This is the marker of friendship. To hold the sacredness of our own vulnerability. To hold the sacredness of our own vulnerability. If vulnerability is this thing, this key in which we get connected both to God and to other people, if that's the doorway, we have to have people who recognize it as totally sacred. That they look at us and go, what you're sharing with me, I will not exploit. I will not belittle you. I will not try to correct it. I won't try to, you know, hammer it out for you. I won't try to, I won't post it on my Facebook. It's just for us. It's just, I hold this vulnerability. And it's sacred. Not everyone can be trusted with all of you. Not everyone can be trusted with all of who you are. Does that make sense? There are some of you in this room who have said, I'm just so desperate for connection. I'll give everything I've got to other people and let them see what they do with it. And you have had your heart trampled on. Those people are not friends. They're just not friends. Doesn't mean, they're not, doesn't mean they don't have the capacity for friendship. They just don't with you. Not everybody can be trusted with all of who you are. And not everybody should be trusted with it. For me, it's maybe three people in my life. Maybe three people in my own life. And for me, when I was, let's see, a couple years ago, before I even had kids, I was meeting with a guy who I've been friends with since I was in junior high. And we'd meet at El Pollo Loco in Costa Mesa. And we would, we would say things to each other about our personal life that if anybody else overheard us, they would throw their like, cup in our face. I mean, it was like we were t- talking about stuff that was scary. But he holds the sacredness of my own vulnerability. That's friendship. It's a place where it's someone that can look at you guys and go, yeah, you're weak, me too. I see your weakness. I'm not going to exploit it. For me, as I was thinking about this, someone asked me this week, they go, Jeff, what do you think about that? Do you feel like you don't have the ability to like be you know, weak or whatever? And I go, well, I go, I don't like it. Because I think they were talking about sometimes, you know, I tell you what's going on in my life here. I don't always like it. You know, people offer helpful things to me all the time after I talk about it. But I feel like the room needs it. I feel like people need to know that you have to do this. This is what it means to have real connection with God. But I started thinking, I was like, I don't think I have, I mean, I think I've, I've been around enough healthy people to be able to help me be okay with some vulnerability, knowing that that's part of what you got to do. I'm not fully vulnerable, I know that. But, but I said, I think there's something that's, I was thinking about this week, and something that's kind of scary for me is, maybe dads, you can connect with this. I have this sense that I might actually perceive my own weakness and I might project it onto my own sons. Meaning, I might actually, I might be actually trying to process my own fear and my own weakness by making them 
unconsciously by making them something that they're not. I think this is the reason why you have dads who are yellers at sports, who are over the top with different things. It's not because they're so wanting their sons to be great. It's because they're processing their own weakness in someone else. Maybe. Not everybody gets to have this moment with us. This is where I feel like, well, next thing, this. You need people to hold the sacredness of your own vulnerability. That's number two. And then number three, the ability to hold the sacredness, the sacred vulnerability of other people. Meaning you yourself have to be someone who goes, what people share with me about their own vulnerability and their own weakness, all of that stuff, I'm willing to hold that sacred too. It's not for my own gain. It's not for my profit. It's not for anything else. It's just to hold it for them. This is where Rooted is so unbelievably great. It's some, for some people, it's the only place in their life they've ever experienced where, where a group of people go, we hold the vulnerability for you in the most sacred way. And we are with you in it. People, that have, people say things in rooted groups they've never shared with anybody else for fear of being exposed. Because for fear of showing that there's a break in the armor, there's some kind of chink in the armor or something else. And they say it in front of a rooted group and the rooted group goes, we are so with you in that. We don't have answers, but we're with you in that. We will pray with you in it. Now, I think, just on a broader sense, the world is dying for people who know how to hold the sacred space for people to be vulnerable. People that will never walk into a church, never walk into this room, never sit among us, potentially, are longing for someone to say, you don't have to have it all together and I can hold this sacredness of your vulnerability right now with you. They're dying for it. Everybody is living life alone, cover under these, the, underneath all the coverings and the coping and everything else in their life, and they need someone to say, I can hold this with you. You see, friendship's reciprocal. It's not just that we need people that can hold our sacred vulnerability, it's that we can hold the sacred vulnerability for other people. And you see, just as you think about this a little bit, this, is, has, this has necessary connections when we start talking about sexuality. People want intimacy and connection, and oftentimes they'll replace the personal vulnerability with the physical one and wonder why it's not sufficient. God intended us to be in deep intimacy. The church has a powerful role in holding sacred space. And the church isn't just this building. It is you in your community. We talk about all the time. The beauty of the church isn't just in this room. It is you in your community. It is you in the world. That's the beauty of the church is really expressed. One of the markers of a truly vulnerable person. Some of you will recognize this experience. I'll just ask, how many of you guys with a person that you're with, whether you're dating someone, you know, and it's real serious, or you're, you're engaged, you're married, how many of you were the first person to say, I love you? you like, you, you said it before they did. Look at it, they're like, I don't know what's he going to make me do. Like, you can just raise your hand. I'm not going to make you say it out loud again. If you're not, you know, maybe you're ashamed of it. Maybe you should put your hand up really fast. Okay, yeah, there we go. Own it. Thank you, Schubert. Okay. <clears throat> for the person who does that, there is never a more vulnerable moment for them. When they say, I am so in love with you, and then it's out there. And it can be spiked like a volleyball. Oh, really? Boom. Too bad. Oh. 
or it can be embraced. But there is ne- it's one of the most vulnerable moments that we ever get to have in our lives when we say to someone else, I love you. Oh my gosh, I said that out loud. Please, please respond. Please say something. I'm, please make me invisible. You know, like whatever it is. And I want you to sense this. Remember that Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. And I just want you to get this idea really quickly. It is Jesus who says to us, first, I love you. I'm crazy about you. I would do anything I could to make you come to me, but I can't make you do it. You have to choose me. Foundational to all these relationships that we have and everything else we talk about, parenting or friendship or sex or whatever else is we're talking about, or marriage, whatever else it is. The first thing is Jesus looks at us and goes, I love you. What do you say? You want to come with me? It's out there now. I will go to my own death, my own public shame, and my own nakedness, that everyone might see it, that you might understand and know how much I love you. Do you want it is all he's saying. God's the first person to say to us, I love you. And to bear the, the risk of rejection. What we're going to do is we do every week is an opportunity to respond to God. Some of you are longing for deep relationships. Some of you are longing for places to be connected. And we want to help you do that as a church. Some of you have only known unhealthy relationships. Some of you are in broken ones right now and you need to figure out some help or you want some prayer, whatever it might be. We have people that would love to pray with you. You can come forward and be prayed for in a moment. We're getting an opportunity to sing our own prayers. I love that Kim described it in a moment. To sing our own prayers back to God. To capture this idea that God says to us first, I so love you. And I know already all of your weakness. I know the chinks in your armor. I know how afraid you are of being exposed. And I will hold you and your vulnerability sacred because I know what it means to be fully exposed and to be naked. So we're going to respond in a moment. Let's pray together. Just close your eyes for a moment. Let's get a moment to consider what this looks like. Jesus, we're longing for deep, meaningful friendships. We're longing to be connected in such a way that's powerful. We're longing to be known, and yet we're terrified that if we are known, we're going to be exposed and shamed. As you sit here for just a moment. What are the things that you use to cope? To mask, to hide, to cover up with the shame of who you really are. That way down there, if people really knew who you were, how do you bury it? How do you hide it? Maybe God in some way today wants to do something in your own life that first and foremost, as he says to you, I love you. Maybe for you, it's a time to respond, to say, okay, I'm ready to follow you. I'm I'm ready to love you too. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm ready to do it. For others of us, it's a time to let go, perhaps. A willingness to be exposed in real friendship and real relationships. First and foremost, to God. Jesus, as we sing, as we respond to you, as we come forward in prayer, as we get an opportunity, Father, to meet with you intimately and closely Would we understand and know that we are your dearly loved children and that you say to us with outstretched arms, I love you. And I know, what's, I know what, it's, what it is to be ashamed and in pain and in sorrow. Father, hear our words as we sing. 
hear our words as we pray for each other, as we respond in generosity, giving whatever else it is that we do to respond to you, Father. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.